Going Linux, episode 291, year-end review. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you are new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in going Linux. We hope that you find this and all our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and its applications and using them to get things done. In today's episode, year-end review. Hello, Larry. Hey, Bill. Happy 2016. Yeah, I hadn't talked to you since last year. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It seems not that long ago, but uh, yeah. <laughs> did Did you do anything fun for New Year's? I caught a cold. And, uh, <laughs> okay. That wasn't exactly fun, but it did take a lot of effort to get rid of it. And uh, you may be able to tell that I'm still a little bit stuffy, but uh, other than that, uh, it's uh, I, I'm in good shape. We had uh, family here for Christmas and for New Year, and it was good. It was good. How about you? Well, New Year's Eve, uh, basically, I was asleep by ten o'clock. <laughs> It was going to become 2016 whether I was watching that stupid ball drop or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Well, that's one of the hazards for some people, Bill, is, uh, you know, falling asleep before the ball drops and the time changes. And you could have tuned into the West Coast uh, three hours later, but you were probably sawing logs by then. Yeah. You remember now, I do live on the East Coast. Yes, I know. <laughs> so you're you're in my past so we, when we talk, we're always time traveling here. That's true. And you're in the future. So how is it three hours from now, Bill? <laughs> it is uh, cold and, uh, well, it's that cold and sunny today. Wow, yeah. it was raining like cats and dogs yesterday. So the weather can't decide what it wants to do around here in South Carolina. Yeah. But I will point out, it's been three years and I have yet to make it to midnight to watch that ball drop. But about ten thirty, it's like I'm going to bed. I'm tired of all these celebrities. I'm, you know, my wife just laughs at me. Yeah. So yeah, it's the same thing every year. She wakes me up and say, "It's Happy New Year." I'm like, "Yeah, thanks for waking me up. Now can I go back to sleep?" <laughs> <laughs> so in today's episode, we're going to talk about 2015, and I don't know about you, Larry, but it was a fairly quiet year for Linux compared to 2014. You know, there are probably those that would disagree with us, but I agree with you. It seemed a little quieter than other years. Uh, there are certainly some significant points of progress in each of the distributions that's out there, and we'll talk about some of that and some of the new things on the scene, but it didn't seem so revolutionary as it has in some years past. Like Ubuntu didn't change the position of buttons on the screen anymore. They really haven't done too much with their distribution for desktop Linux, at least. They've primarily been concentrating on the interoperable phone slash desktop slash tablet slash, you know, unified operating system that they've been working on and the other distributions have been plodding along and making some significant changes but nothing revolutionary it's all been evolutionary yeah it's kind of it's kind of like uh you know 2013 2014 and 2015 we had things just you know, going crazy. Everybody was upset about something. You know, we have this news constantly about a bunch of Unity or 
uh, you know, Linux Mint, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in 2015, it's like we're just pushing up uh, small upgrades constantly. We're not doing anything major. And it just seems like, you know, I ask this question all the time. Do you think this was the year of the Linux desktop? And kind of you're like, you know, it probably is because we really haven't, it seems like we've kind of grown up a little bit more. And we're not really uh, kicking the dog quite as much. Mm-hmm. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. There's a southern expression for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Uh, we were talking okay, about yeah. that before we started recording, yeah. but anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. You're right. And I think that that says a lot about the maturity of Linux as an operating system. It certainly, it's been around a lot longer than many other operating systems, and. Um, you know, it's we're moving along, we're making incremental progress, and we're at a point, I think, in the desktop Linux development, which is probably the most recent uh, part of Linux, is Linux for the desktop, uh, with the exception, perhaps, of embedded Linux for Internet of Things sorts of devices. Uh, but Linux desktop is, um, it's maturing. And although it's not the most popular desktop operating system out there and i wouldn't expect it to be in the near term i think it's certainly come into its own and it's become maybe not mainstream but certainly more accepted Uh, and of course we're speaking from a north american perspective here and in other parts of the world linux is mainstream uh, as I understand it, in South America, for example, it is one of the uh, first considered operating systems out there for uh, for desktop uh, operating systems on computers. Yeah. Well, you know, there was one big uh, story that uh, I think that you actually put in our show notes was about uh, Ian Murdoch, the founder of Debian. Yes. What well, uh, there have been a lot of podcasts, especially Linux and open source podcasts, who have already covered this. So should, we should probably not bother covering it in a lot of detail. But Ian Murdoch is the father of Debian, and he passed away at the age of 42 at the end of this year. And I think it it bears repeating that who Ian Murdoch is. And so we'll talk a little bit about it. And we'll have a couple of links in the show notes if you want to get into more detail. But he is the founder, or was the founder of Debian. Uh, In fact, the Ian on the word Debian is his first name. And Deb was his uh, uh, wife, um, girlfriend at the time. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It was a combination of the two names. And uh, he, um, after developing Debian and running that for a while, he became part of Sun Microsystems, became a vice president at Sun before Oracle purchased them. Uh, He is also, was also the uh, Linux Foundation chief technical officer, uh, founded a marketing company called Exact Target. Uh, which subsequently got purchased by uh, Salesforce. And he then left Salesforce to uh, join Docker. So that's, uh, as I understand it, where he was most recently employed is at Docker. And you can read more about that in the Ars Technical article that we have linked, as well as uh, an article on Boing Boing from 
Cory Doctorow, where he discusses some of the issues. Uh, all of this occurred right at the end of the year uh, in 2015. Wow. Yeah, within the last few days. That's crazy. Well, it's kind of interesting to see. I mean, I hate that he passed away, but it's interesting to see that uh, the uh, Debian is still ongoing. It just didn't shrivel up and die. That's kind of a uh, important aspect of the Linux community is uh, where one per- person might be very important if something happens to him, it doesn't mean that the whole community or, or project just dies. Oh, absolutely. Just, you know, they, he'll always be the father of Debian, but it just won't, it just doesn't stop. It, you know, if there's someone else who will step in and, and keep it going and, and, uh, hopefully continue on what his vision was. But that's very sad. I'm sorry to hear about that. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, in 2015, some interesting things did happen in the year. Okay. And one of my favorite is our Going Linux Google Plus community went over a thousand members. A thousand members? A thousand members. Yeah, as of this recording, we're at 1,164 members on our Google Plus community. And that's with me on the podcast. I and mean, that's, that's just defying mathematical reason right there. You should, you should, we should have like 58 people. I mean, come on. <laughs> Not a th- over a thousand. Uh, so we're, we're pretty popular. We really are. So, well, actually you're popular. I'm just the other guy. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> we like to review about that, but, uh, Hey, you're, you're an integral part of this bill. You've, you've gone uh, from, what was it we used to call you? Uh, chief executive, chief minion. executive minion. That's right. You've gone from that to a uh, full fledged co-host uh, for a number of years now. So I, I, we can't get rid of you. Well, you could, but your ratings might go up for that. You know, no. you never know, Come on. but you know, it, it's, uh, actually I didn't start as chief executive minion. I just feel was filling in temporarily. That's true. For just a regular uh, minion. Tom. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a regular minion. You know, say, I just wanted to fill in because Tom couldn't be there. And then uh, when Tom came back for a while, we decided that we were going to do uh, have three voices because, you know, I was, I was a distro hopper and and um, Tom was the new user with super user skills. And then, of course, we had the Linux guru, which is you. So, you know, it was kind of interesting, but... Uh, you know, uh, just I mean to say this, I miss Tom. I still do. Mm-hmm. As do our listeners, uh, as they continue to tell us and remind us, and that's great. Would you please bring Tom back and get rid of this guy <laughs> with the Southern slang, please? Oh, they okay. never say get rid of you. They really yeah. don't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, they refer sure. to you as the other guy, but they don't yeah, the say we guy. should get rid of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, so we've seen a few things that have kind of exploded. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the scene, and one of them was uh, Ubuntu uh, Mate. Yes, absolutely. It went from like being unknown to being big news, and I can now say that I have two favorite distros. I have Ubuntu Mate and Ubuntu Studio. I really like those two. That's what I usually run on my systems now. And uh, I just cannot believe that that the old mate desktop with some improvements is so wanted and loved after and compared to uh, all these new you know desktops that are coming out it, people still love that desktop and I do too it's very user friendly you know where everything is all the menus where you want them to be you can change it around a little bit it's just it's amazing that they were able to take that 
updated uh, with some of the latest uh, whiz bangs and people just are flocking to it. Yeah, it, it made of course is relatively new and it's based on the old GNOME 2. Uh, but GNOME 2 is kind of the classic traditional GNOME desktop. And as a result, when that got replaced uh, by GNOME 3, there was a big hullabaloo way back when, certainly before 2015. And, you know, Mate eventually took over and or Mate eventually took over and they've made some significant improvements on it since then. And I think it's come into its own as a desktop environment. Uh, and it's no longer the old GNOME 2. It's got some of the same traditional look and feel. And that's what I think attracts people to it is it's comfortable. It's familiar. Uh, and even with that, though, they haven't stayed static. They haven't said, okay, we're going to lock this in and freeze it. Let's continue to develop it. Uh, they've And they've done a fantastic job of that and improved it as time has gone on. They started off with some subset of the GNOME 2 features, but they've uh, quickly uh, caught up to where GNOME 2 was and surpassed it, in my opinion. They've just done a phenomenal job. And now that Martin Wimpress has made the Ubuntu Mate an official Ubuntu flavor on its own, I think it's going to continue to grow and to evolve. And I'm I'm really looking forward to it. In fact, uh, Ubuntu Mate is one of the things that stood out for me in 2015. You know the uh, interesting thing was. You remember when they uh, they they said to us that the the reason they were getting rid of the old GNOME two, they they told us that they could not maintain the code anymore. It yeah. was just too old. Yep. Well, it's just amazing to see that it's still here. Might now, of course, they've probably done a lot of work under the hood, but the look is still there, and its look is what the people wanted. Yes. So it's very inter interesting all of a sudden they say, well, we can't maintain this code. So my question to you is, why couldn't they have just done the same thing that Ubuntu Mate is doing now? I mean, did they just say, we're going to, we're just going to just get a whole new paragon uh, of uh, desktop and people just want to get used to it? Why couldn't they just have done what Ubuntu Mate does and, and, and taken the new code and, and made it look? like the old Mate desktop with the improvements? Because, I mean, it seemed like it had been a lot less controversial. The old GNOME 2 desktop, you mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, this is my opinion as opposed to anything based in fact, <laughs> just just <laughs> as a disclaimer. But um, I suspect that a lot of the Mate developers are the developers that were supporting and developing GNOME 2. But having said that, I think that the message that they couldn't maintain the old code was coming from the GNOME Foundation. And remember, they're an organization that does a lot of different things. And they wanted to move ahead. They had a vision for where GNOME should go. And they wanted to take it in a little different direction than the classic uh, design that was GNOME 2 at the time that is now Mate. And so... I think they were saying more, we can't maintain both GNOME 2 and GNOME 3, probably because they didn't have the personnel to handle it. Uh, and by allowing it to be forked over, uh, and that's a function of the license more than anything else, to, be allow to allow it to be forked into the Mate desktop, uh, 
uh, it, it allowed people who wanted to continue contributing to take that code and take it to new heights as they've done and new contributors who were interested in continuing to support something that they loved uh, as a desktop environment and new developers to join in the project and so that's just the nature of open source software uh, so where one organization doesn't have the resources to continue to develop a new organization results or a new community forms and the, the development continues so I, I think that just is a testament to open source development in general uh, someone uh, suggested uh, in a post, and I can't remember who I can't attribute it to them, but they said that, that we have enough desktops and we don't need any more. Well, that's probably true unless you want something different from what's out there, in which case we don't have enough. So, you know, yeah. we well, certainly it, have a lot. It's a, it's a strength of yeah. Linux to be able to pick what you want. So the more the merrier. Right. And whether you decide that you want to design a new desktop environment from scratch or you want to take an existing desktop that you kind of like, but you'd like a little different features to it and you begin development on it and you tweak it and suddenly you've formed a new desktop environment and now you've got yet another one. So <laughs> it's kind of the way it goes. We may have enough, but as people tweak it to their own personal likes and desires, uh, there's always the possibility that we will have many, many more to come. Well, you know, speaking of desktops and distributions, mm -hmm. I know you follow them. I don't. Uh, what's Linux Mint up to these days? Ah, uh, yes. So, of course, Linux Mint has the Mate desktop as one of its primary desktop environments. The other is Cinnamon, which the Linux Mint folks were the originators of and continue to support and develop. and Linux Mint is one of those distributions that has done some significant development, particularly in the Cinnamon world in um, 2015. They switched their model uh, from being one that follows in lockstep with Ubuntu, because it's based on Ubuntu, of course, uh, and following the distribution releases of Ubuntu into uh, a distribution that actually locks in on the most recent LTS or long-term support release of Ubuntu and continues to ride that out until the next long-term support release comes out. And, and so they have introduced uh, Linux Mint 17, which is their current version. Uh, and they've incrementally released 17.1, 17.2, 17.3, all of which are based on the 14.04 um, Ubuntu long-term support release. And when 16.04 comes out of uh, Ubuntu, Linux Mint, I'm expecting, will switch to the new long-term support release for their next release after that. And they will then have version 18 of Linux Mint, which will have a new name, which they've actually announced recently as Sarah. Their major releases all start with the same letter name. So all of the 17, 17.1, 17.2, and 17.3 have been names that begin with the letter R. So 18 will begin using the letter S as the first letter of the names for its incremental releases. So uh, that's that's kind of the 
overall general news for Linux Mint, but the major changes, and they've been incrementally changing the operating system's underpinnings as well, but the major changes have been in Cinnamon uh, and in what they've been doing with Mate and some of the other uh, significant features to the Mint portions of the operating system as opposed to the underlying Ubuntu or the Linux uh, part of the Linux Mint operating system. And that was one of the strategies uh, that they wanted to be able to implement by sticking with a long-term support release base for a number of point releases. Uh, and they've achieved that, and they've been able to make some uh, larger strides in development of the Mint tools and Cinnamon in particular than they would have had they continued to try to keep up with Ubuntu uh, in lockstep on each of the releases. I think that was a good decision. I think so as well. And that I, I don't remember whether that was a 2015 or a 2014 decision on their part, but it was certainly one of the key decisions that's contributed to them being the successful uh, distribution that they are. And they're certainly number one on DistroWatch uh, by far. Their their popularity, looking at the number of votes or the number of clicks that, that determine the rankings, they have uh, not quite twice as many as the next, uh, which is Debian, but they have twice as many as Ubuntu for sure. That's very interesting. It's Well, I had to give them one... Uh... I have to give them two perks. One, they've held that number one spot for a long time now. They have, yes. And two, at least they named their distros as names you can pronounce, not some weird uh, cartoon names, you know, like Warty Warthog and what was the, uh, what was the, uh, some of the other ones, like, uh, just nuts that, uh, well, Mark what, yeah, comes up well, with. you, you could pronounce Wiley Werewolf, but, uh, the next one is going to be, uh, what are they going to call it? Xenial Zerus. <laughs> yeah, something I, like that. I have hard enough talking as it is. I can't even pronounce them. Hey, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. So, since we're talking about distributions, uh, I'll tell you some of the distributions have made some impressions on me. Mm -hmm. And then you can... You see, agree or disagree or, or offer your own list. Fair enough. The ones that made impression on me this year were Ubuntu Studio and Ubuntu Mate. Mm -hmm. uh, Ubuntu, which is old Unity. It's, it's just rock solid. It seems strange to be calling Unity old these days. <laughs> yeah, I know, but uh, it, you but you're know right. what I mean. I do, I do. And uh, the other one, and it's an honorable mention because it still has some quirks, is elementary Linux because mm -hmm. it uses a totally different desktop. Um, I'm not quite sure what they're trying to do. It seems like they give mixed messages once in a while, but uh, I know I know what they're trying to accomplish. They're trying to make it as user-friendly as possible, but sometimes it seems to me they might go a little too far and make it a little harder for a new user to maybe install what they want. Mm. Uh, it just seems like here's the best, here's what we think's best. And, you know, you don't need to look any farther. And I'm, I'm one of the first people I always download my favorite applications because there's just so many to try out. Yeah. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, I, I found that as I've gotten, uh, using Linux a lot more in my, I like just the, uh, not plain Jane, but the, the simpler interfaces, you know, like 
the Ubuntu Studio and Ubuntu Mate just because they're comfortable. They, you know, there's not a lot of fluff. You can add some whiz bangs to them if you want, but you don't have to. And uh, uh, the reason I mentioned Ubuntu Unity is that when it first came out, I hated it. It was horrible. It was clunky. It didn't work right. Uh, I didn't like anything about it. And uh, then they, they, even though they, they, they knew what I felt, they continued working on it anyway. And it actually has become a really nice, stable, easy-to-use uh, desktop. So I have to give them uh, perks for at least sticking to their guns. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's definitely come into its own, and they've they've made a lot of improvements to the point where I would have to agree that it is uh, you could do a lot worse than Ubuntu Unity, and it's probably the third one that I would recommend to new users. I wouldn't recommend it as the first choice for new users. I think that is Ubuntu Mate these days. Oh yeah. Yeah, if someone asked me, I'd say yeah, Ubuntu Mate. Right, uh, and then Linux Mint Cinnamon, I think, would be number two, and then followed by Ubuntu Unity. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of these Chromebooks running around. Did, did any <laughs> of those distributions make any uh, open your eyes or say, "Ooh, uh, that's a good idea"? What? Well, of course, Linux is the operating system underpinning the Chrome operating system on the Chromebooks. And uh, there have been a number of attempts over the last couple of years, particularly in 2015, uh, regarding trying to make Linux run on a Chromebook or trying to make a non-Chromebook hardware uh, have an operating system that looks and behaves like Chrome. And so a couple stand out in that latter category. One is Chromixium. And Chromixium is a Linux distribution that has essentially some themes that make it look like Chrome. So it's not at all the Chrome operating system, but it is a full-fledged Linux distribution that has theming on it and some of the behavior on it that makes it look and behave a lot like the Chrome operating system. So if you like Chrome, but you want something with a little more heft and power and has the features of full-fledged Linux, then you might try Chromixium. It's still in fairly early stages, so it's a bit... Mm, it's got some rough edges, let's say. So it may not be the perfect distribution for everybody, and it's certainly not something for new users who haven't had experience with Linux. However, there is one that I recommended on our forum lately uh, for someone who had been looking for something like this. And it is truly a Linux distribution that it's not a clone of the Chrome operating system from Google, but it uh, does give you the capabilities of true Chrome operating system. And, and I think it's actually, if not officially supported by the folks at Google, certainly contributed to by the folks at Google. Uh, and it's from a company called Neverware. And the name of that distribution is Cloud Ready. And what they tout as their strengths is that... Um, they allow you to install this on whatever hardware it's compatible with, so desktops and laptops and so on, uh, and even um, netbooks, I suppose. Uh, but it is look and behavior, so form and fit, if you will, 
the Chrome operating system in a generic package without the Chrome and Google branding. But its advantage is you can install it on just about any operating system out there. It takes only a gigabyte of uh, RAM and needs eight gigabytes of hard drive space. But it converts any hardware, Mac, Windows hardware, uh, into a Chrome-compatible version of an operating system. So it looks and behaves like Chrome. It has the same features as Chrome for the most part. And the most important part for those people who are, uh, let's say, in schools and trying to implement uh, a Chrome operating system initiative for the school, it allows you to hook up to the Google administrative functions and use the Google tools for administering Chrome. So you can hook up to their tools, their admin tools, just as though it were a, a Chromebook, even though it's running on non-Chromebook hardware. So, yeah, I, I thought that was pretty impressive. Huh. Well, I do. Ha I do. I always forget them. I've used them, and I actually have it running. I don't know why I keep forgetting. Uh, another mention was Netrunner took over. Where uh, Kubuntu we took where Kubuntu was going, right? And they really have made it nice. Uh, I'm not a, fa a huge fan of the KDE, but Netrunner has done a nice job. Right, right, and they've taken the KDE desktop and continued to support it for Ubuntu, and they, like you said, they've done a good job. I haven't installed KDE for years on my desktop, so I haven't used Netrunner. Uh, but uh, I'll defer to you on that. Uh, I expect that, uh, for, well, certainly from what you've said and from what uh, other folks have said in blog posts and reviews and so on, Netrunner is a phenomenal implementation of the KDE desktop with a an Ubuntu base. Okay. Well, you know, we've been talking about distributions. Let's talk about how most people interface with the World Wide Web. Browsers. Browsers. Okay, so like Safari and Edge and stuff like that. Yeah. Safari, <laughs> Internet Explorer, or I'm sorry, Microsoft Edge. Yeah. Um, have you seen any standouts in there besides, you know, well, Chrome just continues to get better. I've, you know, I use Chrome 99% of the time, but, you know, I, I play around with Opera mm -hmm. and they do an okay job, but they've, they've kind of, uh, seems like they've kind of toned down some of the stuff that made them a little bit different. It seems like Chrome works 99.9% .9 of the time flawlessly. And when I try to use Firefox, I know they're talking about uh, changing, you know, the underpinnings and going to uh, a different uh, code base. Uh, I don't know if they have done it yet, but I just find that Mozilla is just, when I get to Chrome, it's, it works, and I, there's no reason for me to even look at any of the other browsers, because there's all the plugins I need, and there's just doesn't seem to be any reason to look anywhere else. Have you found that to be true, or am I being just short-sighted? No, I, I agree that Chrome has probably taken on a life of its own as the standout browser for 2015 and beyond. Uh, it is cross-platform, so it works on 
Windows, Mac, and Linux. And it, as you said, has a lot of different plugins available for it. Of course, they don't call them plugins, they call them extensions. And they have built-in applications that are cross-platform as well. And you can simply do things with the Chrome browser that you can't do with other browsers in terms of interoperability between desktops and desktop environments, um, whether that's Linux desktop or Windows desktop or uh, the, the Macintosh desktop. Um, I have, as I've mentioned before, a, um, uh, a MacBook Air for my work, and I run the Chrome browser on there along with the Chrome browser on my Linux computers. And I even run the Chrome browser on my company provided iPhone and it works flawlessly on all three platforms for me. And of course I don't have any windows systems anymore, so I can't comment on it there. Perhaps you can or have, but um, just the features that are available. And I think one of the reasons for the Chrome browser becoming much better over time and, and accelerating so quickly is the fact that it is the basis for the Chrome operating system as well. Without uh, Basically, the Chrome operating system is uh, a functional version of, of the Chrome browser. And with the popularity of Chrome uh, as an operating system, of course, that drives the popularity of the Chrome browser and helps with compatibility. One of, one of the key things driving compatibility is support from uh, developers outside of Google, outside of those developers that work on Chrome itself, and support from the Windows developers, from the uh, OS X developers, making sure that it runs perfectly in their operating system. And I think that they've achieved that. They've they've certainly gotten to the point where it is, if not the number one browser out there, it, uh, it it's close to it. And I I would suspect certainly among our listeners, it's it's uh, number one or number two up there with uh, with Firefox. I remember when Chrome first came out, people were like, that that browser's never going to do anything. It's not going to amount, you know, Internet Explorer and Firefox, you know, or Mozilla at the time, I think it was called, um, is they're, they're never going to be unseated. And it's, it's just kept growing and growing and getting better and better. Uh, I will say, and it's and I know this is probably going to be a shock to most people, probably not, uh, that I, I use a lot of different operating systems. I have a Mac, and I use Chrome on that. I have Windows 10. I use it on that. I have it on my my Linux machines. Uh, it, what's nice is, once you, no matter what you're working on, and this also includes uh, if you're on someone else's system and you and you just want your bookmarks and your you know your familiar surroundings you just log in and it pulls all that stuff down and so it doesn't matter what operating system you're using it on it just works the way you remember it you know it brings the same back back uh, wallpaper down and you know it's just it's it's just you know your all your uh, bookmarks are there so it's it's just dead easy and it and it looks the same so the buttons are in the same place the uh, bookmark is in the same place. You know, all your pre preferences are there, so you don't have to re-enter everything. So, you know, I just find that incredibly empowering because I don't have to 
relearn something. I don't have to remember how to use this browser from 10 years ago. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to worry about, you know, well, what's my password for this? You know, once I can remember one password and I get in, I can do my stuff and get out. So that's what I like about Chrome. So I, I think, you know, where it's not really a big news story, uh, Chrome just keeps getting better and better. Yeah, you're, you're right there. And I think that's one of the key features that has contributed to its popularity is the fact that when you install it on a new computer, you log in with your credentials and everything comes over, all your extensions, all your bookmarks, as you said, all your applications, they're all there. Uh, and that's also one of the driving features of the Chrome operating system and Chromebooks is when you get a new Chromebook, you log in with your credentials, your Google credentials, and everything works just as it did on the previous computer because everything is synchronized. And, <laughs> you know, setting up a new Chromebook is uh, open the lid, log in, done. I mean, that's it. And that's too many steps for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, thinking about that, that is the kind of thing that um, Apple has been trying to accomplish with the Apple Store, with their design philosophy, is make it easy for the user uh, so that they don't have to think about things. And I think Google has surpassed them in implementing that for the the Chrome operating system and even within the Chrome browser itself. They have really uh, done what Apple has been trying to do for years, have done it much more quickly and done it more effectively in terms of making it easy and brain dead for users to set up a new computer or set up a new browser. Just it's dead simple. Yeah. And the nice thing about the Chromebooks, they're cheap. So if you break it, you're not crying that you just blew a seventeen hundred dollar uh, laptop. So. Unless you buy a Pixel. <laughs> well, yeah, Pixel. Okay, <laughs> there's a nice. Yes. Uh, you have three, right? Uh, three what? Three Chromebooks. Pixels. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I have one Chromebook, and it is one of the cheapest you can get. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw. Uh, Two articles I, I wanted to kind of mention. They kind of relate to Linux, but they're not specifically for Linux. But uh, first one, it was an article, and I've got to, I'll have to find the link and post it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. But it was it's the articles uh, said Microsoft Windows 10 uh, that it was the nail in the coffin for Linux. I think and I read I that article. I, yeah, <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, who wrote it? I know it's maybe Ars Technica. I have to I have to look it up. But Microsoft Windows 10, I have to say, is my favorite Windows to date. Uh, after you turn off a lot of stuff, of course. Um, I I still don't think it replaces Linux for customization, uh, freedoms, or uh, security. I just don't. If anything, Microsoft Windows 10 actually has more uh, more ways that uh, Big Brother can watch what you're doing because I know that if you read the license it, it tells you that certain things will talk back to Microsoft and to better help them improve your experience and stuff you can go and turn a lot of that stuff off but I don't have to do that with Linux I can turn on what I want I don't have to install and turn off I have to install and turn on that's yeah, the difference right exactly and there are certain things that on the Apple operating system and the Microsoft operating system that you can't turn on or turn off or uh, even control. 
And as a result, if you really want full control and full security for yourself, you have to go to Linux or BSD or something that has an open source license because with the proprietary licenses of Apple and Microsoft, they are not going to give you the kinds of uh, ability to be in control of how your operating system works and behaves and looks even uh, that uh, that Linux can give you. Well, I'll give you an example of what I mean by the uh, freedoms and uh, uh, I don't usually install updates when they first come out. I usually wait a day or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because in case there, there's a problem, I want to know about it. Now, is uh, this updates for Linux or updates for Windows? For, for Windows. For Windows. I'm okay. giving an example of yeah. one of the reasons that, in my opinion, uh, Windows will never replace Linux for me. Got it. Is that you can only postpone updates so many times, and then it forces you to update. Right. And I think it's – and I've only been able to, to postpone it, uh, if I remember correctly, three or four times before it says we're going to update you and we're updating it now and it does it and there's not much you can do about it right so i mean that's kind of like in linux i've i've been known to wait on updates for a week two weeks just you know especially if they're big updates now security updates i usually install immediately but some of the optional stuff i usually wait on just to make sure that it doesn't break anything yeah i do enough of that on my own i don't need help <laughs> yeah I know how that goes, Bill. Uh, well, and the other one is um, in Apple news. And the reason I'm bringing this up is, you know, Apple always says they're the most secure, safe, virus-free operating system out there. Uh, it was found out that that's not exactly the truth. The truth is they're good at hiding it. Uh, when you're running a Windows system, when it gets infected, you notice pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But apparently on a on uh, OS X, it just kind of keeps good working and do, is not quite as noticeable. You, so you could be uh, infected with uh, viruses, and so what that kind of brings me to believe is that Linux is still the most secure and safe operating system <laughs> because you just don't know because it's it's a closed source. So if, of course, if they're getting viruses and stuff, they're not going to advertise it. Right. It's in their best interest to fix it as quickly as possible, but if they can't fix it or don't have the resources to fix it right away, to keep it under wraps because they don't want people taking advantage of it. So not so to show you I'm not bashing on Microsoft Windows or Apple OS X because I, I like both systems uh, for what they are, and I use both of them. I have yet to understand what the fighting was in Debian about and it was something about system D what 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 is, what is this and why is this important well i don't understand it all either but here's what i do understand that for the average linux user it doesn't matter <laughs> there's, well, there's there's nothing there that will actually show any improvement or any degradation uh, to the average Linux user that logs in to check their email, browse the web, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, for developers, for people who try to eke the best performance out of their systems possible, perhaps 
there are some advantages to system D over whatever replaces it or whatever replaces it over system D. I don't know. Uh, but I think it's more of a philosophical argument of should we continue to use this old code or sh and, and improve it over time, or should we rewrite it and go to something that, that rethinks how we're running the system or booting the system? Um, for the average user, it won't amount to a hill of beans. Oh, well, you know what? I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> so tell me, um, out of everything in 2015, if you have to pick one item, what caught your eye? Internet of Things uh, in general. And in particular, Internet of Things, for those uninitiated, is the implementation of computing technology to make everyday objects connected to the Internet and accessible by the Internet. Think Philips Hue lights. Think... Um, Pebble the Watch, Nest, uh, yeah, Nest Thermostat, internet-connected refrigerators that order food for you when you get low on milk or whatever. <laughs> Those kinds of things. I'm not giving my credit card to my refrigerator. I know. You never know <laughs> what it's going to order uh, or how much. Um, so there's the thing. Uh, the Internet of Things uh, has become even more prevalent and has expanded tremendously in 2015 and the one thing that caught my eye in the open source world around internet of things is the mycroft artificial intelligence project which is one of those products that allows you to and and by the way it's not generally available yet it is one of the uh, crowd-funded projects that uh, is underway they have some prototypes they have some actual work and models what it is is uh, think um, Amazon Echo, think uh, any of these devices that allow you to say, hey, somebody or other, and ask it a question and it comes back with a response or those kinds of things. So Apple Siri or Android's, um, what does Google call theirs? Uh, um, yeah, the... Hey, Google, that one. Google now, that one, that's it. Google now, things like that. But this is a specific device that you put into your home that allows you to say something to it and it will respond and give you whatever it is you want, uh, like, you know, converting from uh, standard to metric, like, uh, you know, how, how far is it to the moon from the earth or... Uh, how long would it take to uh, boil an egg? Uh, I don't know. I'm just making stuff up now. But you could even have more intelligent questions than those that just come to mind right now. Well, you know, the problem I have with that, and that's not really a problem, is it's smarter than I am. So what happens if it decides it wants to say, hey, we don't need him anymore. I'm smart enough and just gets rid of me one night, you know, turns on the gas and blows me up or something, you know. I don't know. I want now seriously that's great uh i think i agree with you because i've seen a lot more stuff uh that's been you know connected uh to the internet so it works in conjunction and i tell you what i really really want one of those nest thermostats yeah. i know it's i'm such a uh a geeker i love gadgets and i told my wife i said that's what i want and so she gave me a box and it had a little 
advertisement of his nest and said, there you go, there's your nest thermostat. I was kind of disappointed. Oh. <laughs> so I didn't get my nest thermostat, so. Oh, it was just Santa a box. Com- <laughs> yeah, it's just oh, okay. a box. So it was, she just put the little, you know, because there was an ad uh, in a you know, magazine. I guess she found it. Mm-hmm. And so she cut it out and put it in the box and said, there's your nest. So it was a joke. So I think Santa might have to come later this year, and uh, I might have to find one of these nests because I sure would like to play with it. And that's the problem. I'd play with it too much, and my power bill would triple. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it's an all. I do these things for you. <laughs> but uh, anyway, kind of coming to an end, 2015 was quiet, but there is some stuff that's went on. Uh, maybe it has been revolutionary but it has been evolutionary yes and so my prediction and, and since i'll go first since i'm the blabbermouth of the group mm-hmm. is for 2016 will be the year of the linux desktop <laughs> <laughs> i think that has already passed we've already got there bill in my opinion but uh, hey, i'm going with the safe bet here yeah okay some would disagree that that's the safe bet but um You know, this is less of a prediction and more of something we need to watch out for, especially in the United States, and that is privacy and security. I think the the direction that the U.S. government is taking us uh, in terms of um, looking at the need for uh, all things cyber, uh, as they describe it, or internet connected, as the rest of the world might discuss it, and security in that area, uh, they, the U.S. government, that is, are pushing pretty heavily, and in some cases with media support, for backdoors into uh, operating systems, backdoors into browsers, backdoors into security systems, backdoors into encryption. And in general, I think that's a bad idea, uh, because uh, simply put, if there's a backdoor that's accessible by the government, uh, it is also accessible by other parties, including the bad guys. And we know how um, efficiently and effectively the government has protected security on their own websites. <laughs> <laughs> and so, databases. Yes. So I don't think there's any reason to believe that uh, – something as inefficient as any government, U.S. or other government. And by nature, they are inefficient uh, and in some cases ineffective. Uh, And I don't think there's any reason to believe that the government here in the United States can protect us from any attacker, uh, especially when they drill a hole through a firewall or drill a hole through encryption in order for them to be able to more easily detect bad people uh, to say nothing of are they actually doing that or are they using it to spy on our own folks Um, taking that aside let's just assume the best intentions here to to use something like that as a, a method of trying to make us more secure is actually going to make us less secure and I think they really need to think of other ways to achieve the goals that they're trying to achieve, which is uh, trying to make us more secure and trying to find out what uh, the uh, bad folks, just let's just call them bad folks, are doing um, 
uh, before they actually do it. Uh, let's find another way to do it rather than compromising the privacy and security of everyone in an attempt to do that. Well, let's not mix messages here. Uh, I agree with you 100%, but I also want to point out they're supposed to have some of the best hardware, best software, military-grade, unlimited money, and they can't secure their own servers. So what makes you think they can secure us? Mm. Yeah. I mean, if you really think about it, they have more money to throw at this problem and than either – probably – Myself, you, and all our listeners combined, where, where, and they where, still can't get it right. Where did they get that money, Bill? Uh, oh, never mind. Uh, from me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from all of us. Um, so, yeah, it, it was kind. Of, it would be kind of like you giving me the keys to your studio and walking away for a day. We've done that, Bill. <laughs> yeah, and you saw what happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think. Politics aside, uh, we definitely need to keep an eye on that, and I think open source is in the best position to resist those problems. We we definitely need to make sure that as we monitor the situation that— We stay uh, informed. We stay informed, and the other thing to think of, even those outside of the United States need to watch what the U.S. does as well, because the U.S. has a big influence on a lot of— other countries, especially the United Kingdom, in terms of these kinds of policies, and vice versa. Uh, and the UK has been known to be thinking in this direction as well, independently. So we, we need to stay informed. We need to get involved where necessary to ensure that our privacy and security uh, is maintained uh, or even improved going forward. Yeah. As I like to say, United States is the land of the free. So let's try to keep it that way. All right. So is that it for our episode, Bill? I think that's it. So what's our next episode, Larry? Well, our next episode will be another listener feedback episode. And I know that our last listener feedback episode didn't have any emails, but we took a lot from our Google Plus community. This time around, we've already started getting emails in for 2016, and we'll continue to uh, get our contributions from our emails, our voicemails, our Google Plus community, and from wherever else we get our listener feedback. But our next episode will be jam-packed full of good information from our listeners. Awesome. So until then, you can go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. And if you'd like, you can participate directly with our helpful and friendly community members by joining the discussion in our Going Links podcast Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73. music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.